We find ourselves this morning returning to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we have transitioned in our study from Luke chapter 6. Now find ourselves going to Luke chapter 7. Of course, we understand that chapter titles and numbers and highlighted parts in your scriptures and you with red letter Bibles and things like that were not part of God's communicating to us. They were not inscripturated. The titles we have are there by man's doing. Even the numbering of verses are there for our helpful cataloging, if you will, but they were not put there by the original authors. But here we are in Luke chapter 7. Easy for us to see, easy for us to find, and we are continuing through our study of the Gospel of Luke, and we are coming off the sermon that Jesus gave in chapter 6, to which we were answering the question, what is a Christian? I was thinking about that Recently again, of course, in my own study, and I was doing some reading and thought about the reality of conversion. Conversion. What is a Christian? Someone who is converted. I don't know if you know this, but on Sunday morning, January 6th, 1850, after a night of snow, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a boy of 15 then, went into primitive Methodist chapel in Colchester, England, and through the message of some unknown preacher, he came to faith in Christ. The preacher just said simply this, young man, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. Spurgeon says of his own conversion, I saw at once the way of salvation. Look to Jesus Christ. Upon that message from that preacher, Spurgeon was converted. And so in one sense, conversion is very simple. It's a very simple reality. In fact, Spurgeon summarized it with these words. In all true conversions, there are points of essential agreement. There must be in all a penitent confession of sin and a looking to Jesus for forgiveness of it. And there must also be a real change of heart, such as shall affect the entire afterlife. And where these points are not to be found, there is no genuine conversion. What Spurgeon was trying to describe there was simply, really, a simple definition of that very word, conversion. Conversion means change. Complete and utter change. And of course, Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, as we have it recorded by Luke, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching about the difference between those who are authentic Christians, those who are truly converted, and those who are inauthentic Christians, or those who are not converted. 
In other words, there is a clear demarcation line concerning those who are in the kingdom of God with those who are not. Conversion is that line. Even though some may profess that they are in the kingdom without a change of life, their conversion is suspect at best. And so we could say that there are many who say that they will be with God in the glories of heaven. There are many who profess with their lips that they will one day end up in heaven's glory, and yet they do not know Jesus Christ at all. They have never been converted. Remember last Lord's Day, we heard Jesus proclaim really with utter clarity that those who are His, they come to Him, they hear His voice, and they do what He says. They come to Him, they hear His voice, and they do what He says. We saw that in verse 47. Everyone who comes to Me and hears My words and acts upon them, I will show you what he is like. And of course, he gave that clear example of two different lives with two different destinations, two different realities, two different results. One was a solid life. One was well built. It was a house that did not crash down when the torrents burst against it because it was built upon the rock. It had a foundation that went down to the bedrock. Of course, Christ is implying that it was built upon His words. They heard what He said. They came to Jesus, they heard Jesus, and they acted upon the words of Jesus. But others were not like that. Although they looked similar for two-thirds of the time, in other words, 66% of the time, they did the very same things. They came to Jesus and they heard Jesus, but then they did not act upon the words of Jesus. Of course, they had no foundation. And so when life began to beat against it, when it came to the end even, it collapsed and the ruin of the house was great. Come to Him, hear Him, and do what He says. Each of those are important truths, and we studied them last Lord's Day. And from our study, we can conclude that there is an inescapable reality for each and every authentic Christian. There is an inescapable reality for each and every Christian, and that is that they are obedient to the Word of God. Authentic Christians act upon the Word of God. They hear Jesus because they've come to Jesus and they do what He says. This principle was always clear with the apostles after they were converted to Jesus Christ. In fact, this is what the Apostle Peter was saying to the believers who were scattered throughout Asia Minor. Once the church began, this is what he said about salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
in order to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Who is the you? You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is in this that you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And listen, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. What Peter is describing there is complete conversion. Conversion, the utter change of a life. The blasting of life upon the house and the house does not crash. Peter says, although you have not seen Jesus, certainly would be true of any of us here this morning, we have not seen Jesus in any kind of physical way. Peter says, although you have not seen Jesus, you love Him and you believe Him. You love Jesus, and you believe Jesus. You've looked to Jesus. You've come to Jesus. You've heard the words of Jesus, and you believe Jesus. And he is implying that the very words are the words you believe, and therefore you do them. You act upon them. Jesus has been articulating this principle about salvation all along as he started his ministry. And for one to believe what Jesus says, they must understand their spiritual condition without Jesus. Of course, Jesus spoke to that when He began His message back in chapter 6 and verse 20. Turning His gaze on His disciples, He began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Poor. poor doesn't mean economically poor, we understand that. Although that certainly might be the case for us, we might be economically poor. It doesn't mean intellectually poor, as some try to imply that those who believe upon Jesus are intellectual dummies because it's an irrational faith, they say. So we are intellectually poor. Faith in anything other than what you see, the world tries to say, is an intellectual disengagement of your mind. It is foolishness. It is mere just mind games. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying you're intellectually poor if you believe me. No, poor means none of those things. But what it does mean is that you understand that you are spiritually bankrupt of any kind of righteousness, bankrupt of any kind of goodness, bankrupt of any kind of hold on personal goodness for your own righteousness before God. That's what poor means. In other words, to be a Christian, to be converted, one must come to Jesus completely bankrupt of self, bankrupt of your own righteousness. 
That means that if there is any kind of self-righteousness that you or I are holding on to, any kind of sense in which we believe that when we stand before a holy God, God will look at us and we can say, hey, look at us, look what we have done. If that is in our minds and in our hearts in any way tied to our quote-unquote conversion, the reality is there is no conversion. Self-righteousness gives you no hope. Authentic Christians certainly can act self-righteously. Certainly we do that, sadly, to our own shame. But no one is saved if they believe that their acts of self-righteousness in some way meet or even help meet God's righteous requirement in order to escape His wrath. The Apostle Paul certainly was clear on that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Nothing could be clear. No one is rewarded with saving grace and saving faith because they somehow deserve it by their own effort. doesn't happen. Every other religion in the world that doesn't believe upon Jesus Christ alone, because of the grace of God alone, by faith alone, all to the glory of God alone, is not a religion that will save you. Salvation is not some kind of earned trophy. In fact, if it's an earned trophy, is it any wonder that our world believes everybody's going to be saved because in our day and age, everybody gets a trophy anyway. Brothers and sisters, when we are sharing the gospel, we must not fall to the temptation to in any way minimize the reality of the need of denying self in conversion. Sometimes we get this idea that we need to relax the sharpness, that we need to relax the definitive line, the demarcation line when it comes to salvation, that we need to relax the the sheer sharpness that Jesus Christ puts when He talks about the hope of salvation in Him. We don't need to relax that at all. We most certainly must give the hope that is found only in Jesus Christ. We must certainly share that there is only hope in Jesus Christ alone, but at the same time, we must never minimize the damning nature of holding on to any kind of self-merit. To do that is to give a false gospel. Because unless someone comes to Jesus spiritually bankrupt, they cannot be saved. Why? Because blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And if we think we are rich spiritually, Jesus says you have your reward in full. Verse 24, woe to you who are rich. He's not talking about economic richness. He's not talking about intellectual richness. He is talking about the reality that you believe in your heart that you are spiritually rich enough in order to stand before a holy God and thereby outlast His wrath. You have your reward in full. 
but your reward will not save you. So authentic Christianity is the result of one who comes to Jesus spiritually bankrupt, hungering for a righteousness that is not their own, mourning over their sin, and because they have embraced Jesus Christ and nothing else, they find themselves being hated by the very world that they were part of. Their conversion becomes total. Total. The world in which they used to live now hates them because it hates the Jesus they are with. So we come to chapter 7. And here we find in chapter 7 an example of the genuine faith of a Gentile. The genuine faith of a Gentile. And it shines so brightly against the darkness of Israel's continued rejection of Jesus Christ. And of course, when I say Israel, I don't mean every person within the nation of Israel rejected Jesus. That's obviously not the case. There are at least 12 apostles who are with him. There are even some other disciples who have believed, because we saw that even all the way back in chapter that there were people who were the first disciples of Jesus. I'm sorry, chapter 5, right? He keeps preaching in the synagogues and then they're pressing around him and they're standing around in the lake. He's in the north and, and he preaches to these people and people come to know Jesus. So there are those who have been converted already. They don't understand the full nature of what that means in life, just like we don't when we get saved. Sometimes we, God saves us, and we have to learn over time what it is that God is changing in us, the things we put off and the things of the Word of God that we put on. But here in Luke chapter 7, we find the genuine faith of a Gentile. And it shines brightly against the darkness of that rejection. And so what I want to do this morning is just walk through this text and highlight some truths that just kind of come to the surface as we move along. So that we go away from our time this morning understanding that much like Spurgeon understood, a word from Jesus is enough. A word from Jesus is enough. Let's first look at the place that this takes place. Verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. He went to Capernaum. It's interesting that Luke tells us that this encounter took place after Jesus had finished his sermon. Notice it says, when he had completed all his discourse, in the hearing of the people. What was Jesus preaching about? Jesus was preaching about the character of those in the kingdom. This is what a kingdom citizen is like. What is a Christian? What is a follower of me? Jesus was saying. And now Luke brings us to this next moment when the very principles that Jesus was teaching are on display. This is a true convert. Here is a Roman soldier, verse 2 tells us, a certain centurion 
a certain centurion. He's a Roman soldier, and he is the one who has saving faith. He is the one who has been converted by Jesus Christ. We don't know when the conversion took place, but as we go on, you'll see that he is truly a saved man. And it is in contrast, it is in stark contrast to the multitude of Jews who had been following Jesus, who had been hearing Jesus, and yet they're not doing what Jesus says. They still believe that a relationship with God is based upon effort, based upon their merit. And I hope we can see that more clearly as we go on. So Jesus has spoken, and he goes then to Capernaum, or Capernaum as it was known. Capernaum was Jesus' home away from home. Remember, he grew up in Nazareth. He was from Nazareth, a town not far from Capernaum. But his hometown, you remember, had rejected him. He had gone back there once his ministry started, and he had preached in the synagogue. And from that one message that he speaks about in the synagogue in Nazareth, they drag him out to the hillside and want to throw him off a cliff. It didn't take long for Jesus in his own hometown to be hated. And so they reject him and his message. And so when he's in the north, when he's in the Galilee region, he stays in Capernaum. And because Jesus was in this region already, as he he gave his sermon to the crowd, and of course we've seen in the earlier chapters of Luke, he was already ministering around there and healing many of the sick. In fact, he went to Peter's house after he had gone out onto the water and shared with all the disciples, and he goes to Peter's house, and Peter, mother-in-law, is sick. He heals them, and the people flock to that house and bring all the sick there. Well, that's in Capernaum. That's where Jesus is. And so this is a familiar area. And Jesus, of course, had been known in the region. And it's no wonder that the centurion knew of Jesus, as we'll see going on, because Jesus spent time there. Jesus did all these things there. And certainly the centurion had heard of Jesus. So the place is Capernaum in the north near the Sea of Galilee. Secondly, the circumstance is this, verse 2. The certain centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. This is the circumstance around which Luke builds this scenario so that we can see what Jesus has been teaching in Luke chapter 6, playing out here in the beginning of Luke chapter 7. Centurions were fairly common in the Roman Empire. They were all over the place. The Roman Empire was a vast empire spread far and wide, and centurions were common. They would have been what we might think of like captains in the military or maybe a lieutenant colonel in the military. They were were the upper ranks, if you will, but they were not as maybe prevalent as just a regular Roman soldier, but there were many, many centurions. And they were called centurions because they had a responsibility over a hundred men. Hence the term centurion. They were over a hundred men. And this centurion was stationed, if you will, in the area to the north where there were several Roman soldiers in that region, and he lived in and around the area of Capernaum. And he had a servant. He was well off. Most uh, centurions were well off because they were more paid than the rest. 
Some of your translations say he it wasn't a servant, it was a slave. In fact, in the New American Standard, that's the term used there, centurion's slave. The original term is doulos, that's the word for slave. In many of your translations, it does say servant. But the servant is also referred to, you notice, in verse 7, at least in the New American Standard. At the end of verse 7, it says that when the centurion's talking, and my servant will be healed, that's a whole different term. That's not the term doulos, that's the term paes, which means boy or small child. So the centurion has this servant, and while he does have this doulos, this one who's serving in his house, he actually considers him even his own child. There's that tight bond relationship going on here. So whatever the overarching circumstances is with this servant's illness, in fact, it says he has some kind of paralysis, a deathly, a deadly paralysis. He was seen, in spite of all of that, by his centurion to be very special. This was a special servant, an indentured servant, a young one at that, and yet very special to this centurion, so much so that he identifies him in verse 7 as his own boy or his own child. In fact, you notice that the text says he was highly regarded, verse 2. Centurion's slave who was highly regarded by him. That means that he was honored by the centurion as something more valuable than all the others. And so certainly, as we could imagine, he is very concerned. He has this great concern on his mind about this one whom he cares deeply about. And so when he's sick and he's about to die, urgency sets in like it would with any of us. And he knows there's only one place he can go. So number three is the urgency. You notice verses three to five, when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him saying, he is worthy for you to grant this to him for he loves our nation. And it was he who built us our synagogue. If you understand Jewish history and the relationship between the Jews and the Romans, it's rather shocking to read that just on the surface because here is a Gentile Roman soldier. There's two problems there. Gentiles and Jews typically did not mix together, and a Roman soldier certainly wouldn't mix. And yet here is a Gentile Roman soldier asking Jewish elders to go and get Jesus. And shockingly upon all of that, the elders actually go. They go to Jesus because verse 4 says when they had come to Jesus, it is clear just from that that this man was no common Roman soldier, even in the eyes of the Jews. He was no common man. Jewish leaders were not errand boys. They were not ones to go and run to your house and look for secret documents. These were not those kind of people. Jewish leaders weren't like that, and they definitely would not do that for a Gentile, let alone a Gentile Roman soldier. But the text tells us what they thought of him. The text tells us he was not some normal Roman soldier. He was a special guy in their eyes. 
And it gives us a glimpse into how they viewed God and how, why God should do what he's asking. This is a view into the heart of the Jewish mindset in how to have a relationship with God. And this is what it says, verses 4 and 5. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly entreated Him, saying, that means they were, they were begging Jesus with, with some pretty fervent begging. You, you have to do this. Why? Because He's worthy He's worthy for you to grant this to him. Isn't it interesting that they wanted to reject Jesus outright because Jesus wasn't the Messiah, but they certainly wanted to say, listen, you can come and do some miraculous thing for him because he's worthy of that. Why? He loves our nation. He loves the Jewish people. In fact, he's very philanthropic to us. It was he who built our synagogue. Somehow... And from some sources, this centurion knew Jesus, probably simply because he was in the region and Jesus was in the region and word went out to all the region when Jesus was around because of what Jesus was doing. And so clearly from what he knew of Jesus, he had believed in who Jesus was. He believed that Jesus was in fact the one who could do this for his slave. That Jesus, he knew God's the only one who could do these things. Here he is, and he asks this delegation of leaders from the Jews to go to Jesus, asking him. And he tells them what to ask. Verse 3 tells us, go to him and ask him to come and save the life of his slave. Now that sounds very innocuous in one sense, and yet when you get farther into this, you notice that it's not Jesus come, come into my house and, and do something there. It's simply just, just be willing to, to say a word. Don't come to my house because I believe Jews and Gentiles, I think this is the reason the Jews and Gentiles weren't going to be coming together. And so he knew that if a Jew entered a Gentile house, it would be undefiled for that Jew. The Jew would be undefiled. And he certainly didn't want to bring that upon Jesus. So he sends this delegation and he sends to, says to them, just say to him, come and please save the life of my slave. That's not what they said. That's not what they said. They didn't say what the centurion wanted them to say. They said something wholly different. They told Jesus that he was worthy for him to come. Why? Because this man had, at least in their minds, he had done things for them that obligated Jesus to do what he asked. In other, in other words, He had bought. He had done some things in his life that were obligating God to do for him. In other words, these Jewish leaders took what the the urgency in the heart of the centurion and they put a spin on it to say, this is what you need to do because that's how they viewed how God operated. Come do this for him because we know when we do things for God, God does things for us. In other words, blessings from God come on the backs of our own efforts. For the average Jew, self righteous deeds obligated God to save. 
It obligated God to heal. It obligated God to help them. That's simply to say they're irrational in their minds. Their rationale for Jesus was all external. You want help from Jesus? You want help from God? Do the external things. He loves our nation. In fact, He's the one who built our synagogue. Jesus, surely you can see that this man deserves your help. Surely you can see that he's been righteous, even though he's not a Jew. We get it. Even though he's not that, he deserves your help. They aren't saying anything about faith. They're not saying anything about he was truly converted by trusting in you as his Savior, and his life has totally changed, and he just wants to see you glorified and honored, and so he has spent his money promoting the fact that you are God and He even built our synagogue because He wants the truth preached. They didn't say any of that. Nothing internal at all. Were they describing about this man? No, they simply highlighted what He had done for them outwardly. To them, His personal merit obligated Jesus to help. In the same way, they believe their own righteous deeds obligated God to save them. We have Abraham as our father, they said to Jesus. We are of the nation of Israel. We we belong by heritage to the things of the promise. Therefore, we're in. We're good. Doesn't matter. You're out. Sadly, that's how many... Today, come to Jesus. They come with self-righteous attitudes, self-righteous hearts, believing that God's obligated to save them. After all, look what they've done. After all, look at how much money I've given to religious organizations. Look how many hours I've sacrificed for charity's sake and how many times I've I've reached out and put my money in the little red jug or whatever else they want to put on their epitaph and list of goodness. I built a church. This is my church. They're worthy of God's help. So we've seen the place and the Circumstance and urgency. What's Jesus' response? Number four, Jesus' response and the second request made. Notice verses six and seven. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and he was already not far from the house. The centurion sent friends. Implication there, at least in the words of Luke, to his friend Theophilus, to whom he's writing all of this, so that Theophilus will know for certain who Jesus Christ is, writes differently about these people than he wrote about the Jews. He sends friends. He sent the Jewish leaders thinking that, hey, they'll tell him what truly is right. They're the religious people, and yet they don't do what he needs. And so now, when Jesus is closer, he sends friends saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself further. Why? Because I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to even come under my roof. It's for that reason. I I didn't even come to you myself. 
I don't consider myself worthy to come to you, but just notice, say the word. And my paese, my servant, my young child will be healed. Just say the word. Jesus knows whose heart is soft. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is fully God, yet fully man. And so He goes. He goes with them. Surely, after His message, there were many who were saying, ooh, let's see where He's going now. Why? Because they were hoping that He might do some kind of miracle they could watch. Luke says that's not exactly what happened, at least not visibly. The centurion says, don't trouble yourself any further. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof for this reason. I didn't even come consider myself worthy to come to you. You just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Apparently, either the centurion had second thoughts about sending the Jewish elders there, Either he was having some kind of buyer's remorse on the fact that these guys were going and he thought to himself, maybe they're not going to say what I wanted them to say. They're going to say something foolish and I certainly don't want Jesus to hear something foolish because that's not my heart. I truly believe who Jesus is. Or maybe he was just simply and humbly convicted about his own unworthiness to have Jesus even enter his house and thereby potentially be defiled as he is a Jew, that Jesus himself coming into his house would defile even Jesus, that he sends these others to share his true heart to Jesus. I think probably it's a little bit of both. Whatever the case, though, the words of his friends to Jesus tell us much about how this man viewed himself righteously. Don't come. Don't trouble yourself. You don't have to trouble yourself by proximity. I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. It's even for that reason that I'm not worthy for you to even come near me, that I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you and be in your proximity. You just say the word. My servant will be healed. First, he obviously saw himself as he really was. The centurion sees himself rightly. He sees himself as an unworthy sinner. I am not worthy. I don't even consider myself worthy. I believe, beloved, this is so important for us to hear. Don't let it pass us by because it is the picture of what Jesus said back in chapter 6, verse 20. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Once we see ourselves as we really are, once we see ourselves before God as God sees us before Himself, once we recognize our own sinfulness, once we see our sin as God sees it, and all of its ugliness and all of its deserving of the wrath of God, the potential for so much more is there from us by way of sinfulness than we will ever realize when we see ourselves that way, we will avoid the temptation of saying, I am worthy. 
because we're not worthy. This is the trouble with the modern church and the gospel it preaches today. This is the trouble we see so often in the modern evangelical church. Just come to Jesus. Why? Because He'll fix your problems. You're worthy to have your problems fixed. Come to Jesus and He'll fix your life. He loves you. He wants you to come to Him. Just come to Him. He wants you wealthy. He wants you healthy. After all, Look at what you've done. You deserve it. You're worthy. And you're worthy of saving. No sense of sin. No sense of deserved separation from God. No sense in which the evangelical church today in its foolishness says that, listen, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and they suppress the truth in their own unrighteousness. The church just says, hey, come to church because we're going to give you what you like. No sense of the offense against God that sin is. No sense of personal ownership that it's me, undeserved. I do not deserve the grace of God at all. And yet, the reality is that none of us will ever understand salvation that is found in Christ alone until we understand how utter and totally depraved we are. You don't believe you're totally and utterly depraved because of your sin, that your sin will take you places you never hoped you would go. If you don't believe that is in your heart without Christ, that you cannot do anything good and of yourselves, you will never understand salvation. How can one understand salvation if they do not understand the depth from sin from which they are saved? Centurion understands his condition. So what does he do? He humbles himself and acknowledges Jesus' divine power. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. I know this, he says, because verse 8, notice verse 8 through 10, I too am a man under authority. I have soldiers under me. I say to this one, go. He goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. That's why I understand the principle, Jesus. I understand who you are. I understand that you have the power. I understand that you have the authority. I understand that you're the only one who can do this. I'm unworthy not only to have you in my house, I'm unworthy to be in the same street that you are. I'm unworthy to walk on the same dirt you're walking on. I'm unworthy to be in proximity to you at all. In fact, if none of that happened, I would be totally destitute and it would be deserved for me to be destitute. But listen, none of that happens because you just say the word and he'll be healed. Just say it. I trust you. Isn't that what Hebrews says? Faith 
is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen? I don't need you to come. I don't need you to be near me. I don't need you to be close to me. You just say the word. I know you can heal with the word, Jesus. I know you can do it. Why? Because you have all authority. You have all the authority. The centurion shows his faith with his words. Just say the word and it'll be done. Why? Because you have divine authority. It's who you are. You're God. Centurion's just saying to Jesus, I know this is true because I have an authority in a much lesser way, in a far lesser way. I speak to those who are under me and I say things to them because of my authority and they do it. And yet in a far out reaching far greater way you being the one with all authority can just command it to happen and it will happen he knows that why because in Capernaum and in that region Jesus has already cast out demons Jesus said be gone and the demons gone and the guys in his right mind certainly the centurion would have known of that just say it You don't have to come. Just say it. I know who you are. I I know you can do this. I believe you. Up to this point, the faith of this man had dispatched two delegations of people. One showed an ignorance of faith. They showed that they thought Jesus was obligated to do something for this man. The other expresses The man's true faith. Lord, don't come to me. I'm not worthy. The Jewish elders are saying he is worthy. The man is saying, look, go share with him. Tell him I'm not worthy at all. I'm not worthy for him to come to my house. I'm not worthy for him to even come near to me. He knew he was an unworthy sinner. He knew who Jesus was. He knew Jesus was the righteous Savior and he believed that Jesus could heal his servant. All that is shocking. And yet that's not the most shocking. The most shocking is what Jesus thought. Notice verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. Don't don't miss that. Don't don't just read over that phrase so quickly. Jesus marveled at him. There's only two times in the entire New Testament, in fact, in the entire Bible, really, that says God marveled. God was amazed. That's the word. He was amazed. Jesus was amazed. Only two times in the New Testament it says that Jesus was amazed. The first time was back in Luke chapter 4. What happened in Luke chapter 4? Jesus had preached in the synagogue and the people of his hometown drug him out to the cliff and wanted to throw him off. And it says, he marveled at their unbelief. Jesus was amazed that the Jews 
rejected him in that way. And of course, we are seeing here a picture of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is amazed. He's marveling at this Gentile who believes. Right here we're getting a glimpse into the humanity of Jesus Christ Himself as God, His divinity, as the God-man, as, as His divineness is. It cannot be surprised. Nobody can surprise divinity. Why? Because divinity is omniscient. It knows everything. There's no surprises. But in His humanity, He could be amazed. And He was amazed at the faith of this man. Why? Why is he amazed? Because here is a Gentile. Here is a Gentile man in the high rankings of his office. Here is a man who was not brought up under the tutelage of the synagogue. Here is a man who did not grow up under hearing the word of God. He was not in the people of God. He did not have the covenants of God. He did not have the scriptures that he grew up under. He was, as Paul says about the Gentiles, in the world without God, yet without hope. And yet here is a Gentile without any of that. And yet he comes to Christ. Here's a military man, a man in his position, in his rankings in society, a soldier in the army of a pagan government who is high ranking. He has authority and power. He has means economically. He has all that the world could offer him at that day in position and place and money. He's not the likings of a person who would be humble at all. And yet here he is, humble, contrite, coming to Christ. He would have had the wealth under the temptation that all the riches he had would give him by way of advantage. Like Jesus would even say to his disciples, it's difficult for the rich to come into heaven. Why? Because the temptation is so great. What do they need? Nothing is impossible with God. And so because of God's mercy, the centurion believes in Jesus. Just say the word. Just say the word. Spurgeon heard it. Look to Jesus. Just look to Jesus. Jesus was marveled and turned and said to the multitude that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel, have I found such great faith. That's amazing, isn't it? Jesus had not found that kind of faith in all of Israel. No more sad words than those, I think. With great privilege, beloved, comes great responsibility, doesn't it? The Jewish nation had great privilege. They had the Word of God given to them, and yet they have rejected Jesus. 
And yet here, right in front of them, is this Gentile Roman soldier expressing the simplicity found in the words of Jesus' sermon. Come to me, hear what I'm saying, and do what I say. Humble faith that sees itself as it ought to and sees God as it ought. Humble repentance, humble belief in the words of Jesus because of who Jesus is. That's what brings about salvation. That's what produces conversion. So did Jesus do it? Did Jesus honor his request? Did he speak a word of healing to this man's servant? Luke doesn't tell us. At least not explicitly. Luke doesn't answer that question. But we know the answer. Because of verse 10. When those who had been sent returned to the house, I think the implication is there that both the Jewish leaders and the friends, when they returned, the slave they found in good health. Not only was he made well, but he was completely cured of his disease, his sickness. Our Lord honored the desire of this child of his, the centurion. He honored it. Beloved, biblical faith is true sight. Biblical faith is true sight. So, Do you see yourself as you are before God? And in that, do you see Christ as He is, the Holy One who you must answer to? If so, if so, then you see with eyes of faith. If not, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. May I pray the steadfast love of the Lord be upon us, as the psalmist said, as we hope in Him. As we hope in Him. Let's pray. Father, all of us come to You as sheep who have gone astray. without your loving compassion and grace and mercy to just do what you are capable of doing, and that is to change our hearts and minds, we would not come to you at all. We've heard of you. We're here this day. I pray that we would act upon your words. Lord, may we be humble and contrite of spirit, just like the centurion was. Come to you and believe in who you are. Turn from our sin. Reject our worthiness because we're not worthy at all. And just believe. Lord, we thank you for all that you've taught us. Continue to grow us in your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.